of chapter 21, and it's the conclusion of the book itself. In this chapter, we see the description of the eternal state of God's people. Whenever you stop and think about it, throughout all of the centuries, God's people have been encouraged during troublesome times by the thought of heaven. You know, a lot of people think that we think too much about heaven, when in reality, we don't think about it often enough. We need to think more about that future estate, and it is the most encouraging thing that 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 I can imagine, and uh, that's why many, many years ago at a special time in my life that I really discovered Second Corinthians chapter 4 and chapter 5, the last part of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, and uh, it really enables us to deal with whatever we're facing if we understand what it's all about, and I'm going to comment on that in one of the verses here in a little while. Now, in this chapter, there are three separate sections, none of them very long, but beginning in verse 1 down through verse number 5, we see the description of our eternal state. And we start with the river in verse number 1, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, Proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, remember, because the throne of the Lamb is mentioned being inside the city, if you'll look down in verse number 3, it's mentioned as being inside the city. But also remember that the Bible tells us that Christ is going to reign from the throne of His father David in Jerusalem. Now, it's important that we understand this because whenever we put those things together, what we discover is that evidently the new Jerusalem, remember we already talked about that, that heavenly city that's 1,500 miles high, wide, long, 1,500 mile cube, the new Jerusalem, as it comes down out of heaven, will, I believe, evidently, if Christ is going to be on the throne of his father David in Jerusalem, and if the throne is in the heavenly city, then that must be the contact point. You're getting the picture. If I had a chalkboard, I'd draw it. But you just picture the earth and picture the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and that's the contact point right there. And whenever we think about it, and it, it you know, it just boggles the mind because. You know, we do our best to stretch our imagination, try to get our arms around this. But I don't care how hard you try or how long you uh, you spend in trying to do that, you, you just can't ever get it all. And about the time you think you got it all, let me tell you what to do. Talk to a bunch of kids, you know, six, seven, eight years old. I'll guarantee you they'll come up with a question that'll leave you scratching your head. They ask some of the best questions imaginable. So here we see the river. My dad, after he made a profession of faith, and he was as sincere as he could be, and he wanted to know if, if there would be such a thing as fishing in heaven. I said, well, what makes you think that? And he talked about, well, you talked about, you know, being a river there. There's water there, so you know, are we going to be able to fish? 
it kind of tells you how much he enjoyed fishing and uh, and where I got my love for the sport, I guess. But there will be a river there, by the way. And, and notice, it's not the San Jacinto because it's pure as crystal. <laughs> I mean... This is pure water, no contamination in heaven. Nothing unclean enters into heaven. Now, verse 2, our attention is turned from the river to the tree of life. And it says, in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. So, evidently, if I understand this right, the tree is going to bear a new crop of fruit each month of the year. And and, and remember, evidently, uh, the twelve tribes of Israel, each one, have a gate that they enter through each year, partaking of the leaves, which brings universal healing, as it were. You know, we keep looking for the fountain of life, or you know, people have. And uh, let me tell you, God's got that covered. God has got that covered. And the leaves are for the healing of the nations. And again, as I said, you know, I try to understand, what is that all about, you know? Uh, I don't know. God will explain that whenever we get there. And we don't need to worry ourselves about what we don't understand. It just sure sounds good to me because we ain't got nothing like that here. Amen? But there will be the tree of life in heaven. There will be this pure river in heaven. But notice in verse 3, our attention is turned. Remember, he's still describing our eternal state. And here he speaks about the service of the saints. And there shall be no more curse. Wow, what a day that'll be. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, notice, and His servants shall serve Him. His servants shall serve Him. A lot of people have the idea that, you know, that in heaven it'll be a time of unending idleness, that we'll just sit down by the river of life and dip our feet in the cool water, and we'll sit there for, you know, a million years or two and not really do anything. But the fact of the matter is, the Bible teaches that it's going to be a time of constant service unto the Lord. You know, I said this morning, from the day that I got saved, more than anything, I wanted to serve God, doing something. I wanted God to show me, and I wanted to do whatever it was He laid on my heart. I wanted to serve God to this very day. That is the most important, fulfilling thing in all of life, knowing that I'm spending my life, investing my life in things that are of eternal value. But you know, the the older you get and so on and so forth, I got out of the car tonight and I told Bev, I said, I'm going to bring the cane in tonight. I, uh, You know, and, and this morning, I, you know, my knees were hurting and uh, and, and so forth, and now, I'm not saying that to get your pity or anything, but that's not what I mean, because you've got problems of your own, right? And the reason I bring that up is because we've all got our limitations. And it might be that more than anything, I, I, I'll use Bev, for example, because most of you have never even heard Bev sing. And you wonder where all of these kids got their singing ability. Well, they got it from her. You already knew they didn't get any of it from me because she is a, uh, an excellent singer and, and she would love to sing in the choir. 
And she would love to sing special music. She would love to sing with her girls and so forth. Uh, but because of the fibromyalgia and her, you know, her health problems and the muscles tighten up in her throat and she just can't do it. So we've got all of these limitations here. Uh, Brother Marvin has to get up every once in a while and walk around back there. Why? Because he's got back problems. So we've all got a problem of some kind. But listen, in heaven, we're going to serve him day and night forever. Because there will be no such thing as getting tired. Well, you know, I about wore myself out today, Lord. I'm going to have to take a nap. No, you don't have to worry about that. In other words, you will be able to do the thing that you enjoy more than anything else, which is serving the Lord. Amen? And so His servants are going to serve Him, and we're going to do that day and night. Now, verse 4 and 5, He talks about, now this is really the best part of it, because it has to do with our fellowship uh, the fellowship of Christ. And notice uh, four things I want you to notice here in verse 4 and 5. First of all, there's an unclouded vision. Notice he says we shall see His face. Wow, what a day that's going to be. Amen. To see His face. To see Him as He really is. You know, the, the, the artist has tried to capture his likeness on canvas, and the sculpture has tried to capture his likeness in clay, but in that day, we're going to see him as he really is. I, I've, I've never been one that, uh, in fact, I, we've never put up pictures of Jesus in our home because nobody's got a picture of Jesus. Now, if you get me one, I'll put it up, but nobody has one. And the ones I've seen, I don't think that's anything at all like he looked like. And I would rather just let the Bible guide me in my imagination of what he actually looks like. But in that day, there will be an unclouded vision. The veil's going to be lifted, and for the first time, I love the way John put it, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that whenever he appears, that we shall be like him for we shall see Him as He is. Wow, what a day. Unclouded vision. Notice also, verse 4, there is unmistaken identity. And His name, notice, His name shall be in their foreheads. Well, I said a while ago, we don't always understand everything that we read in the Bible. And that's okay. We don't have to understand it. We just need to accept it. I don't know what the full significance of that statement is, but I know that it is a fact. His name shall be in their foreheads. And so we will be like Christ and identified as His people for all of eternity. Down here, you know, we look around and, and as I say quite often, we all act out of character once in a while, don't we? I mean, you know, we're not always as sweet, loving, kind, and tender uh, all of the time uh, as we are some of the time. We act out of character. We're not always at our best. That's understandable. And to just get a little glimpse of somebody's life, sometimes you wonder to yourself, you know, are they really a Christian? I know they claim to be, but, you know, I've got my doubts. I wonder if they could even really be saved considering the things that they're doing. Well, thank God in that day there will be, there'll be an unmistaken identity because His name shall be in their foreheads. Then notice number three, there's unfailing guidance. Verse number five. He, it says that He giveth them light. You, you know, 
That, that word light is extremely important because you go back to the Old Testament and you remember that it was the Shekinah glory that illuminated the Holy of Holies in the ancient temple. That Shekinah cloud was the visible representation of the presence of God. God manifested Himself, as it were, in light. And He's telling us here that God is going to illuminate His people for all of eternity. There will be no more darkness in that day. No more dying, no more death, none of those things. And then notice verse 5, there's going to be unending victory. He says that we shall reign, how long? Forever. Forever. Some have been troubled by this because, you know, they think, well, no, wait a minute. How can that be? Because we're going to be in heaven, right? And it talks about us reigning forever. So how can we be reigning? Because in order to reign, there, there has to be subjects, somebody under you. You can't reign over somebody unless they're under you. So who is it that we're going to be reigning over? I'm glad you asked that question because the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, verse number 3, that we're going to what? We're going to judge angels. They're going to be under our authority, as it were, in that day. We shall reign with Christ forever. So, that is just a brief description of our eternal state. Now, we come to verse number 6, all the way down through verse number 19. And here we see declarations from heaven. He's been talking about a description of heaven, but here he gives us declarations from heaven, notice verse number 6, And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Now notice here he begins by giving us words of assurance. In other words, he wants us to understand that our hopes and our dreams are based upon the promises of God. It's not that we just pull these things out of the air, you know, as though, you know, somebody says, well, I've got a lot of faith. I just believe everything's going to turn out all right. Well, you know, that's well and good, but positive thinking is far different than biblical faith. Because biblical faith is based upon what God has said. It's your confidence in what God has said. So our hopes are based upon God's promises. And they're described here in verse number 6 as what? Faithful and true. He is faithful and true. You can depend upon Him. He never lies to you. He never deceives you. When God says something, mark it down. That's the way it's going to be. But look also, verse 7 here... Here we find an assurance that this book is of practical value. And the reason I say that, notice it explains itself. He says, that Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And that word blessed tells us there is a blessing in us keeping the Word of God. You go all the way back to the very first psalm, and here we find, Blessed is the man. Listen to what he says. 
Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted with the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, and his leaf also shall not wither. And whatsoever he doth shall prosper. Remember when we started out there in chapter number 1 of Revelation, he told us at the very beginning that there is a blessing to be found in this book. Look at verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. Don't you believe these people that tell you that there's no need to study the book of Revelation because it is so uh, it is so mystical, it is you know so far out there, uh, so symbolic that we can't really understand it, and so there's no need in wasting time even trying to study it. But the Bible itself tells us there is a blessing in this book, and I hope that you've discovered something of that. As we've gone on this journey. So he gives the words of assurance. Now let's go back to, back to our chapter of consideration and look at verse 8 and 9. Because having given us the word of assurance, he gives us a word of rebuke. He says, And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. And then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. So here we see a reminder. Now you've got to put yourself in John's shoes and just imagine how he must have felt when God is unfolding all of this, when God is revealing this. And by the way, John had never been to a Bible study class and studied the book of Revelation because it didn't exist. He's getting it. This is all firsthand. And can you imagine what a revelation this was to John? And it would only be natural when you see something like that to just fall down at the feet of the messenger, right? And the messenger says, no, 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 we're not doing that. Get on your feet. You worship God and God alone. So we need that reminder that God alone is the object of our worship. And that... That's something a lot of folks, I think, forget about today. You know, when we come together in worship, we need to remember this. We are, we are not performing. We are not, we are not trying to just capture the attention and the applause of people. Whenever we worship God, we worship Him and we do what we do with an audience of one. An audience of one. And if we could blot out of our mind, you know, what's going on around us and just focus on nothing but God, it'd make a big difference. And so here is that word of rebuke, that God alone is to be worshipped. But then there comes a word of instruction, verse 10 and 11 and 12. And here's the instruction. First of all, the book is not to be sealed. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Now that proves that this book has never been a closed book. 
And there are those that, you know, that have said that. It's a, it's a closed book. You can't understand it. No need in even going there. It's never been a closed book. It's not sealed. And notice how that he mentions in verse number 11 the permanent character of present choices. He says, And he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he that is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Boy, I'll tell you, that ought to cause a lot of people to be careful about their their decisions. You'll remember whenever the rich man died and he went to hell and lifted up his eyes. And what did he want? A drop of water, right? In other words... He was craving what he had been craving even here on earth. And and the fact of the matter is he's still craving that today. I believe with all of my heart that whenever we die without Christ and go to hell, those lusts, those appetites, those cravings that we had here will be retained while we're there. That's what he's saying. He that's unjust... Let him be unjust still. He that's filthy, let him be filthy still. And can you imagine someone that is, that is a druggie dying and going to hell without Christ and never finding relief from the agony of their withdrawals for all of eternity? Now, verse number 12, rewards will be proportionate. Notice what he says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man, now notice, according as his work shall be. So what we do here determines what we have there. And so many people have the idea, well, you know, I've been saved, I'm going to heaven, I don't need to worry about it, so what difference does it make how I live here? Why is it so important that I go to church and read my Bible and do this and do that? I, I, I'm just going to live life because, I, you know, I believe in Christ and I'm going to heaven. My sins have been forgiven. I've got all of those bases covered. I don't have anything to worry about, so I'm just going to, I'm just going to live like I, you know, want to live. And by the way, there are a lot of people who think exactly like that. That's exactly what they think. And the fact of the matter is it makes a big difference because believers appear at the judgment seat of Christ. We're not saved by our works, but those works that we do here on this earth are going to be rewarded, and every man shall receive according to the work that he has done. And there are going to be those who have many rewards, and some that will have none or few. And so this is a reminder of that. Now, He reminds John of certain things, beginning in verse number 13 through 15. And by the way, we all need these reminders all of the time. Because even though we know certain things, we need to be reminded of them again and again. Verse 13, here's the first reminder. Christ never changes. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and the first and the last. (laughs) that's a way of saying he's got it all covered. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. The second reminder is verse 14, and that is that our obedience will be rewarded. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they might have right to the tree of life and may enter 
in through the gates of the city. Now, automatically there are those that are going to look at that and they're going to say, well, you know, that sure looks like it's teaching salvation by works, but it's not doing that at all. It simply speaks about the blessings associated with having obeyed God. There are blessings associated with obedience to God. And now, maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, but the way it's talking, uh, you know, that we work our way and earn our way into heaven. Well, you know, if you go over to the book of James and just read little bits and pieces of it without any consideration for what the Bible teaches elsewhere, you know, it's going to appear that we're saved by our works. In fact, would you believe the Bible says exactly that, you know? The Bible tells us that, you know, we're justified, we're saved by our works. But you've got to keep that in the context and you've got to look at the big picture. And, and certainly we are justified by our works in the sight of man. But you're not justified in the sight of God by your works. But listen, remember James says that faith without works is what? It's dead. It's no good. It's useless. That tells me that although we're not saved by our works, we're saved by faith, by grace, through faith. But, but the faith that saves us is the kind of faith that will cause us to obey God and to work for God. And so, you know, somebody says, well, oh yeah, I become a Christian way back when, but I've just never cared anything about serving God. Well, you know, there's some good reason to, uh, to be suspicious of that. Because there ought to be evidence, you see. Now, let's go on. We come to verse number 16 and 17. And here we see the extension of a great invitation. Listen to what he says. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel, that is my messenger, to testify unto you uh, uh, these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and the morning star. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Sadly, there are those that, believe it or not, have taken these verses and tried to make them refer to our desire for the coming of the Lord, but that doesn't fit anything at all. It's very obvious here uh, that what he's talking about is the Spirit, that is the Spirit of God, and the bride, which is the church, they're saying, come and what? And take of the water of life freely, right? And in other words, this is an invitation to salvation, inviting folks, as it were, to come to Christ. By the way, that's what's been going on down through the ages since the time of Christ. What, what did the Holy Spirit come to do? Well, if you listen to some people, you would think the only reason for the Holy Spirit to be here is to help them jump over pews and roll in the floor and talk in an unknown language of some kind. But the fact of the matter is the Spirit bears witness to Christ, not to Himself. You, you need to be careful of any church that puts more emphasis upon the Holy Spirit than they do upon the Lord Jesus Christ, because the Holy Spirit bears witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Spirit of God is what brings conviction upon a lost person. 
I love it this morning when somebody said, you know, God has been convicting me. He does that. And if you're unsaved, He does that. And so throughout these ages, the Spirit of God has been striving with men, bringing them to Christ. And that, listen, that's been the message of the church. That's why we exist, that we might extend this invitation around the world. Now, verse 18 and 19 Having spoken about this great invitation, he speaks about a serious warning. Verse 18, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away His part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Boy, I'll tell you what, whenever you look at those verses and consider what He's saying, it ought to scare some people to death with the manner in which they treat the Word of God. And there's so many people to this very day that do not understand it. And, and, you know, as, as a pastor, sometimes I feel like that, that every week I need to talk about, you know, how we got the Word of God. And I need to affirm why it is we believe in the King James Version of the Bible being the most accurate. And, and, and yet I know I, I can't do that every week. I mean, there's so many things that have to be dealt with. There's no way that I can do that. But the fact of the matter is, we've got a whole generation of people that have no clue as to the danger in tampering with God's Word. I mean, that's scary business when God... Listen, God doesn't make any idle threats. When God says He's going to do something, that's exactly what He does. And it matters. We dare not take away from it. We dare not add to it. And by the way, and we're not going to elaborate tonight, we'll talk about it some other time, this does not mean that you lose your salvation. That's not what he's talking about at all. And uh, you have to wait till another day for an explanation of that. But uh, we have eternal life. We never lose that. But God certainly deals with those that tamper with His Word. Now, lastly, verse 20, the last part of verse 20. Well, look at the first part of it first, because here's a glorious promise. And that is, He says, Surely I come quickly. That means it's, number one, sure, that it's certain is coming. And second, you know, it's sudden. I'll come quickly. And so when He comes, there's not going to be any time to prepare. Like the song said, the King is coming, the King is coming. And, and He is. He's coming, and, and, and there's no way that we can wait and suddenly prepare at the last minute. That's the glorious promise. Now, now, all of that being said, now we see John expressing his desire. The desire of John. Look in verse 20, the second half of it, notice he, he says here, He that testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. But notice John said, Even so come Lord Jesus. There's something very important about this I want you to notice. 
John was not looking for the tribulation period. Notice, he's praying here, even so come Lord Jesus. It's pretty clear to me that John believed in the pre-tribulation rapture. We talked about that in a different message. That makes it clear. He didn't say, man, I wish the tribulation would hurry up and get here so we can get beyond that so the Lord could come. No, he believed that Christ could come at that moment, any moment. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And I'm glad that that is our blessed hope, that He is coming. It's going to be sudden. And notice how He closes, and that is with a prayer for the saints. Notice the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. What better way... Uh, could there be to in this book? This is the final benediction of the Bible, and it is an expression of John's desire for what? For the grace of God to be upon his readers, you know. And that gets to the very root of man's needs. That is the grace of God. I, I often say, in fact, just this last week, uh, in responding to to someone's needs, and I mentioned the fact that it was my prayer that they would find God's grace sufficient. And, you know, that's look, that's the only thing that will get us through the kind of stuff that we've got to go through. And God promised Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. All of us face difficult times and serious problems and needs and things that we can't handle on our own. But the grace of God never, ever fails. God's able to do exceedingly abundant above all we could ever ask or think. And I'm so glad that God's grace is there. Because, listen, even though I've been saved all of these years, been preaching all of these years, maybe somebody's thinking, well, I tell you, boy, somebody like Brother Mrs. Stone been faithful to God all of these years. They deserve a break. No, no, no. You got it all wrong. We don't deserve anything. You don't deserve anything. You can never do enough on this earth to deserve anything. And that's where we get all confused because the very minute we start thinking that we deserve something, the very minute you start thinking like that, when the bottom falls out, you know what you're going to do? You're going to get bitter and cantankerous. You're going to be discontent with life because this isn't fair. Well, who said it was supposed to be fair? Where did you ever get that idea? It's not fair, folks. In that sense, it's all by the grace of God. Every good and perfect death comes from what? The Father above. Aren't you glad for the grace of God? And it ought to be our prayer that God would bestow that grace upon our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well... I have no earthly idea what God might be saying to someone here tonight. I I happened to, this afternoon just got on Facebook for just a little bit and just just a little bit of time and just started looking at some comments about the service this morning and started hitting the like button of course and it was thrilling and exciting uh to see how some felt, people felt about what God has done. And uh, 
so I'm so glad for what God has done. But look, it was it was all what unexpected. Nothing was scripted. That's for sure. You don't plan the service like that. You know, we're going to plan next week. We're going to have even a better one. No, no, no. It's not about what we do. It's what God does with us, not what we do for Him. So, tonight, God might be right on the verge of doing something that we never even thought that He would do. And I'm going to give you the opportunity, if He's working that way in your life, to let that be known as we stand together. And we're going to sing a verse of invitation. And while we sing... If God's speaking to your heart, maybe you just want to come and pray or sit there and pray or stand there and pray, whatever. If you need to do business with God, tonight would be a a great time to do just that. Father, we pray tonight you'll bless us, not because we deserve anything, but Lord, because we desperately need what only you can provide. And so we pray your blessings upon each and every one, every family represented here tonight. Have your will and your way in our lives. And may we so live, may we so live that we would be ready if you appeared in the next minute. And hear you say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Always.